0: Here at King's Church, we we believe that none of us have a natural inclination uh, to hear from God, that all of us uh, find that difficult uh, at times because of our fallen nature, and and so we want to pray. We want to pray for God to speak to us. We want to pray for our hearts that will hear from Him, and so we have a prayer uh, listed here should be up on the slide. I'm going to invite you to join me as we pray this. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. Amen. So we are at the end of Paul's third missionary journey in our uh, as we work through the book of Acts. And I have a map here that kind of shows you the route of Paul's uh, last missionary journey. And you'll notice that the I don't know if you can tell the color, the purple dotted one that's making its way along the coast of Asia there. It's bouncing from city to city. And you'll notice that it eventually makes the 400-mile trip there from Patera to Tyre along um, the coast there of Palestine. And there is where Paul and his companions, when they landed there, uh, headed south on their way to Jerusalem. So in the story, you're going to hear these cities described, and, and there's a progression in the story of Paul's trip that uh, you can have that map in mind to give you some perspective on uh, what's happening here in the story. So we're going to have it uh, listed on the slides. Uh, If you have a Bible, we welcome you to open that or look on your phone, whatever you have. And would you join me as we stand uh, out of a sign of respect for the Word of God? This is Acts 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. You may be seated. This morning, I want to talk about courage. Uh, What courage is and how we can have the kind of courage we see displayed in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, if you were to do any reading on the topic of courage, you'll notice that a lot of people talk about the misconceptions of courage. And probably the first misconception people talk about is this idea that a courageous person does not experience fear. Uh, I kind of call it the Superman syndrome. Now, I've got an old-school photo here of uh, Superman, for those of you who remember the original movie, Christopher Reeve. Uh, This is the image, perhaps, that you might have of a courageous person, someone who is strong and capable, uh, almost invincible, willing to uh, take on any uh, battle or or obstacle, Uh, someone who looks the part. But I want to suggest that this is a a facade, a false concept, a false and deceiving image of, of a courageous person. And I want to offer maybe a, a, a different example if you look at uh, someone like Gandhi. I mean, very uh, striking difference in what a courageous person looks like when you look at this man. And here's, here's a man of, of incredible courage. He almost single handedly brought the British Empire to its knees and won the independence of millions of Indian people through the use of nonviolent protest. And so, when when you look at someone like Gandhi, do you do you think this is a courageous person? Another strong image that comes to mind for me of courage is the scene from Saving Private Ryan. The very beginning of the movie, when the soldiers are in the boat and they're headed to the beaches, you know. In this scene, this screenshot here, you can see Tom Hanks and the other uh, actors, and one of the soldiers is throwing up. This to me is a, is a picture of courage. Uh, that, that soldier throwing up is, is how I feel so often, metaphorically, uh, when I have to enter into a difficult uh, situation. That to me is courage because courage is facing the obstacle, entering into the fray even when you're afraid. And one author put it this way, that being terrified but going ahead and doing what must be done, that's courage. The one who feels no fear is a fool. And so I hope all of us can agree to kind of set aside that misconception of courage and what that looks like. And maybe begin to think about a new way of seeing courage. Brene Brown if you've been at King's Church for any number of years, perhaps you've heard me talk about her book, Daring Greatly. I think it's a phenomenal book. The title sums it up well, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. The Courage to be Vulnerable. That's a, a kind of a, a contradictory, seemingly contradictory way to talk about Courage. But Brown uh, defines vulnerability this way. She says it's uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And so what I want us to begin thinking w- uh, when we consider courage is not just uh, facing and confronting physical dangers, uh, but it could be also be uh, you know, not just storming the beaches of Normandy. It also could be writing a poem and posting it on Facebook. That's a courageous act. Putting yourself out there is a courageous act. And, and, and I think this, this idea is a huge problem for us. I think it's a huge problem for our church. Can I just say this? I love, I love you guys, but I could say that courage and lack of courage is a big issue for us. And, and many of you are sitting here today, and you, and you are living scared. Scared. And maybe that's why you're at this church, because I kind of am scared. (laughs) I kind of lead out of that. And and maybe that's what's attracted you to King's Church. Um, But I think we probably need to confront that and and maybe consider there's more. God has more for us. For us not to be afraid to risk emotionally and relationally. Maybe that's what God is calling us to. You know, perhaps there's a conversation you need to have with a family member that you're afraid to have. Or maybe there's a career change you're unwilling to consider because failure is a real possibility. There's any number of things that you're, you're not willing to step into the fray because of your fear and it's paralyzed you. And there's a real lack of courage in your life to follow maybe where God is calling you to lead. Maybe it's simply a life of holiness. Maybe there's sin in your life and you're afraid to really take the risk. Uh, God, what would it look like for me to live my life for you and not to participate in these things that have become so easily, easy for me and become a pattern? And it's a lack of courage. You're, you're afraid to do that. Well, Brene Brown, she argues that a big obstacle for us to living in this kind of way is shame. That shame is a huge issue for us as modern people. Shame is this intense belief that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is something that is so deep and powerful within us. I heard one podcast where an author was saying, you know, love. People talk about love as being the most powerful force in the universe. He said, I believe shame is right there along with it. Of course, love being a positive power and shame being a very destructive one. Uh, Brene Brown talks about shame as if it's a person whispering in your ear after you've, you've failed or risked and it hasn't gone the way you thought. Shame's right there saying, I told you this was a mistake. I told you you couldn't do it. I told you you're not good enough. We all have heard that voice. And it's shame that keeps us small, resentful, and afraid. Now, in contrast to this kind of defeated posture towards life, Brene Brown, in her book, is trying to give us a vision for what a wholehearted life could look like, a life where we're daring greatly. And she shares a story in the book, the very end of the book, actually, a conversation she had with a guy at one of her talks. Uh, This guy was in his early 20s. He'd seen Brene Brown's uh, TED Talk, one of the most popular TED Talks online. And uh, her work inspired him to tell the young woman he was dating uh, for several months that he loved her. Now, when Brene heard this, she winced because she was hoping for a happy ending, but no such luck. The young man told her that the girlfriend's response was that she thought he was awesome, uh, but perhaps they should date other people. And when this young man got back to his apartment after talking uh, to his girlfriend, he told his two roommates what had happened. And they were both hunched over their laptops. And without looking up, one of them said, what were you thinking, man? And, of course, the roommate, uh, you know, he told him, he said, you know, girls only like guys who are running away. And this young man, is, he's telling Brene Brown this story. He looked at her and he said, you know, at that moment, I felt pretty stupid at first. And then I was really mad at myself. And then I got really mad at you. But then I thought about it, and I remembered why I did it. And I told my roommates, I was daring greatly, dude. (laughs) And one of those roommates stopped typing and looked up. And both of them nodded their heads and said, oh, right on, dude. Isn't that what you want for your life? I know that's what I want for mine. That kind of courage to live a full, wholehearted life, not in fear, not in shame. And I think think we get a vision of that kind of life in in the life of Paul. Here in the story, we see Paul facing several things with courage. Uh, one of the first things is he faces courage, or he faces uh, suffering. He faces suffering with courage. Last week, if you were with us, I talked from uh, Acts chapter 20. And there Paul commented that he didn't know exactly what, what awaited him in Jerusalem. All he knew that the Spirit had told him that imprisonment and afflictions <laughs> were coming. That's all he knew. And... You know, it kind of reminds me of that image of the soldiers on, you know, headed to the beaches of Normandy. They knew. They didn't know exactly what was going to happen. They knew it was not going to be good. And they were still willing to go. And here's Paul with the same perspective. In Acts 21 here, we're reintroduced to the prophet Agabus. This is the second time Agabus actually shows up in the book of Acts. He shows up in chapter 11 where we're told there that a prophet named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world, and there was. And so Agabus is a legit prophet. Uh, you know, when he, he starts talking, people listen. And here Agabus is kind of uh, putting on his Old Testament prophet uh, persona, uh, it reminds us of the prophet Ezekiel. If you know the story of Ezekiel, he was um, he was told by God to write a draw, make a drawing of the city of Jerusalem on a brick, and then build a little model of siege weapons that were attacking it. And it was a way of predicting and, and warning the people of God about the Babylonians taking over Jerusalem. And so Agabus here is kind of. Uh, doing a similar thing. He takes Paul's belt. And we're told that he ties himself up with it. And he says. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem. Will bind the man who owns this belt. And deliver him into the hands. Of the Gentiles. So Paul. Paul already knew this. This is just kind of. Doubly confirming. <laughs> what Paul already knew. You know the prophet Agabus. Is telling him Listen. This is what's going to happen to you. And Paul has to face it with courage. You you know, in in thinking about this sermon, I couldn't help but think about these foster families that that were up here and we prayed for them. And, And I know if they've had any sort of training or experience up to this point, they've had people tell them, it's hard. You can expect to suffer. It's really, really difficult. And let me just add, from personal experience, my wife and I were foster parents, and we adopted in that way. It's harder than you think. And it's, it's the kind of hard that you can't understand until you experience it. We can all tell you it's going to be hard. It's kind of like marriage <laughs> or, or having kids. We can tell you it's going to be hard, but until you experience it, you're not really going to understand. And yet... These families are stepping into the fray with courage in the, fray, in the face of suffering. I, I was talking to a grandfather yesterday at Teddy's baseball game, my middle child. And this grandfather, one of the kids of Teddy's te- teammates, was talking about my youngest daughter who we adopted. I was telling him our story, telling him how we were foster parents. And he looked at me and he said, I couldn't do it. He said, I could not welcome a child in my home and knowing that they would be uh, reunited with their, their birth family. I couldn't do it. You know, And it's moments like that that I, I struggle to know how to respond because I don't see myself as this courageous person. It, it's out of weakness, really, that we stepped into becoming foster parents. Uh, but I looked at him and I said, you know, sometimes something's so important that you're just willing to take the risk. And, he, and, he, and I think he just kind of thought about that and, and just walked away. <laughs> I think he didn't know what to do with that. And I, and I wasn't trying to be self-righteous or anything, but just simply out of a conviction of what compelled us was something greater than our own well-being. And so Paul has that kind of courage as he enters into uh, the arena as he heads to Jerusalem. The other thing we see is that Paul has courage in the face of peer pressure, doesn't he? Uh, in the early part of the story, uh, when they sailed uh, to Tyre, they're there, they're with the disciples, they stayed there for seven days, and the Spirit was telling Paul's companions and friends and the people that he was with, telling them not to go to Jerusalem. They, they knew what was going to happen, and they're like, Paul, don't do it. And then this prophet, Agabus, comes and he does this big display. And even Luke, Luke who's writing the story, we're told in verses 12 and 13, Luke includes himself. He says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So even the writer of the book is saying, Paul, don't do it. And what's interesting, this is not uh, a peer pressure to act in an obviously sinful way. I mean, they're not pressuring Paul to sniff cocaine, are they? No, I mean, they're, they're, they're pressuring him uh, to avoid dying or being imprisoned. I mean, it's, it, they want to keep Paul safe. And that would have made the pressure that much more unbearable for Paul. I mean, this had been going on for months. Paul knew this was coming. He'd had all these goodbyes with his friends. He'd had all these loved ones they are telling him, Paul, don't do it. Paul, don't do it. Paul, don't do it. We love you. We don't want this to happen to you. Paul, don't do it. And through it all, Paul is just overwhelmed by it. We can see his angst when he says here in the passage, he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Paul is very close. I get the feeling he's very close to succumbing to the peer pressure. And yet Paul holds on with courage in the face of it to follow in obedience And it brings to mind Paul's words in the the letter to the Galatians in chapter 1, where Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, let me say this. As we look at Paul, we need to say this. that Obviously, it's not only Christians who are courageous people. And I would argue that there are some people that have a natural disposition towards courage more than other people. But I believe that Christianity offers a unique source for courage. And it's a unique source for that's available to anyone. So whether you're a naturally courageous person or perhaps naturally a very scared person what we see is that, that Christianity offers something for you that I think is very powerful and, and I think can be transformative. So let's notice where Paul gets his courage from. First, I want to suggest that Paul got his courage not by looking inward, but by turning his perspective outward. Now, that, I think that inward focus is what, a lot of people in our culture will tell you you need to do to muster up courage. People will tell you what? Believe in yourself. Uh, people will tell you to coach yourself. Tell yourself you can do it. Tell yourself you're powerful. Tell yourself you're strong. And, and I think, you know, with shame, the topic of shame, this is one of the things that I, that I didn't like about Brene Brown's book is her solution to shame was just to encourage you to look within and to coach yourself out of it. Now, of course, I mean, if that's all you got, go with that. Uh, Brene Brown would say, battle shame with self-talk, you know, to tell yourself you're valuable, tell yourself you're worthy, tell yourself you're lovely. But in the end, you know, you could ask, well, why are those things true? Well, because you're telling yourself they're true. Now, I can tell myself I'm an NBA superstar. <laughs> but reality may not be, may not align with my self talk. And so uh, that can be transformative. I, I will not uh, argue that, that that can be very helpful for some people. But, but I, I kind of think it's a little bit like the Stuart Smalley skit, SNL. You remember, right? How he would look in the mirror, you're good enough. You're smart enough and doggone it, people like you. It's humorous because it's kind of ridiculous. It's a little silly. Um, And it, it can be helpful, it can be a little transformative. But let me tell you this, how much more transformative is it to have another live human being tell you you're good enough, you're smart enough? How much more transformative would it be for the God of the universe to tell you you're good enough? You're smart enough. You're valuable. You're lovely. You see, Paul got his courage not because he looked within, but because his eyes were focused on Jesus. We see Paul's answer uh, where the courage comes from when he says, I'm ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's mind. Paul's disposition, Paul's posture is so Christ-oriented. He's not spending the time looking at himself. He's looking at Christ. And any shame or fear of exposure or failure that, that might be holding Paul back has been erased by the gospel. Paul is so soaked in the gospel, the good news of Jesus... that, That the gospel tells us it's not about trying harder. It's not about being successful. It's not about trying to clean yourself up. That's not our answer to being courageous. It's the story of one who was courageous for us. Who was courageous on our behalf. It's the story of Jesus who faced the ultimate suffering and showed courage Because of his love for us. You better believe Jesus was afraid. If you've read the stories of the gospels. And you see the story of Jesus in the garden. He was not this detached stoic Messiah. Unfeeling and unmoved by what he was about to face. We're told in Luke 22 that being in agony. Jesus prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground because of what he faced, because of what he was confronting. And he had courage to step into the fray, to step into the battle, to defeat sin, to redeem us, to win us. And it's through his death that we are cleansed of our shame and our guilt and our sin. And it's through faith in him that we receive his righteousness, his perfection in God's sight. And it's the pronouncement of the gospel. It's not We don't have to look in the mirror and self-coach ourselves. We can hear God's word through the scriptures that we are loved, that we are valuable. And our status is secure. And that's what Paul held on to. And that was his focus. And that was his motivation. And that what is what drove him. And that's why he was able to confront and face these things. But I also think Paul got his courage as well. Not only by focusing on Jesus. He got his courage by trusting in the will of God. Now in the story, it's actually Paul's friend's. That I think got the courage to let Paul go. I think there was courage involved in that for them. They knew what faced Paul, but they had the courage in in verse 14 to say, hey, let the will of the Lord be done. Now, that can either be said with with a sense of frustration or real conviction. And I think there's a little bit of both. There's a little bit of both here. I mean, they're frustrated by it, they don't want Paul to die, they don't want him to be arrested. And yet, they're, they're steeped in the scriptures. They're steeped in the Old Testament. It talked about God's providence. And maybe that concept is new to you. But, for example, if you look at the book of Lamentations, it's just one ex- of so many examples in the Old Testament of God's sovereignty. It says that, Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? God's providence, uh, Jerry Bridges describes it this way, uh, God's providence is His constant care for and His absolute rule over all His creation for His own glory and the good of His people. Let that sink in for a moment. God's providence was essential. A trust in God's providence is essential for us to be people of courage. And Bridges puts it this way the spider building its web in the corner, and Napoleon marching his army across Europe are both under God's control. Now, one of the keys of God's providence being an encouraging thing for us and in developing courage in us are three important points that we have to profess and believe, I think, in order for it to be transformative and allow us to take risks. And, And the first is this, that God is completely sovereign, that God is infinite in wisdom, and that God is perfect in love. You see, you need all three of those for God's providence to be something that empowers you. Without one of them, he kind of goes off the tracks. And put it this way, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. And so when we step into difficult situations with courage, we hold on to these three ideas. And we're able to step into it. It doesn't mean God always wills the easy and comfortable path. That's obvious. <laughs> but even if it isn't comfortable and even if it isn't easy, we can trust. We can trust that God is sovereign, that he is wise, and that he is loving. I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. I'll end with a little personal story. Many years ago... Um, I was the best man for uh, a good friend of mine's wedding. And we decided to do the bachelor weekend on one of the cruise ships that goes here down to Mexico for a few nights. And on the cruise ship, maybe you've seen the rock climbing wall uh, on the cruise ship. Uh, we had gathered around to, to do it. And I got, I got started on that wall and I started going up. And at one point in the wall, maybe you've seen it, uh, the wall kind of jutted out. And the handhold was kind of up on the outside. So I I was down underneath this portion of the wall that jutted out. And in order to to make it up the wall, I was going to have to jump and grab on to the handhold. And of course, I've got the ropes on. I've got the helmet on. There's a big, nice, comfortable... Pad down below me. I, you know, I'm maybe only ten feet up. I'm not that high up. <laughs> you know what? I couldn't do it. I was too afraid. Can I tell you? I that still that has marked me. I was up there shaking, wanting to jump. And I didn't. I just let go and came down. I kind of played it off like no big deal. I was tired. My hands hurt. (laughs) But I still think about that. That time that I didn't go for it because I was afraid. And I wonder how many of you have similar experiences you could share and, and, and we could choose to stay in that place. I, I know for me, it's a battle not to. But if I, if I look at Paul's life and I hold on to this, you know, I get in that problem when I, if I'm focused on myself. You know, I'm thinking about myself instead of on Jesus. And, and then I begin questioning God and his goodness. And instead, I got to be reminded of his sovereignty and his providence and his goodness towards me. You know, when I begin t- to hold on to these things, I begin to live wholeheartedly, begin to dare greatly. And it might involve simply in the ways that I relate with all of you, with my family, with my wife. We all have choices, big choices, little choices, and opportunities to step into the fray. And so I want to invite you to not have that experience I had of regret, And live your life to all its fullness for Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this story. Thank you for the life of Paul. How we see that he lived in a way that is inspiring. But but Lord, it just points us to you ultimately. Because that was Paul's heart. He did all things for the glory of your name. And your reputation. And I pray that we would be a people with that kind of passion. A uh, risk-taking group of people, Lord, that are willing to step out and follow you. Jesus, we are going to be taking the supper. And one of the things, Lord, I'm so thankful for this supper is because it speaks to things like shame. Shame. So many, so many of us in this room, Lord, are dealing with immense uh, shame. And in this meal, you are inviting us to eat with you. And what's so hard, Lord, is you're inviting people that betray you daily. We betray you daily. And yet you, come, you say, Come and eat. Be refreshed. Be restored. I have done the work to save you. Rest in that good news. And I pray that in this meal we would be lifted up. That we would be moved and inspired and strengthened, Jesus. As we seek to live our lives for you. Amen.